3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Carly. Good morning, Max. How are you going? Uh, pretty well, all things considered, in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> Welcome, listeners. Thank you for joining us on 3CR, 855 AM. Um, and we have a pretty good show actually mm. lined up today. Hold on, first, what's the date today? The 19th. The 19th. March. 19th. Holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought it was like the beginning of March, but then there we go. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we're heading towards um, Easter. True. When's that? Um, so it's like early April. Yeah, wow. Mm. And I was hoping to go up to Queensland, but now I'm not sure. It really doesn't look like that might be happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Lots of Easter egg hunts in the backyard, I guess, for all of us. Mm. Mm. And there actually have been a lot of chocolates actually still left um, at like Woolies <laughs> and Coles. <laughs> it's true. Who needs toilet paper when you can have some little chalky Easter bunnies? Yeah, mm. yeah. And um, hot cross buns. Oh, yeah. Okay, what do we have on today? Okay, all right, <laughs> let's get into it. Um, so this morning you're going to be hearing the second episode of Liberation Loops and I have a conversation with young Ocean Dang about pod mapping and Ocean is a Vietnamese settler, therapist, supervisor and facilitator living and working on Yagara and Turrbal country. And I think that um, this is actually a really timely conversation mm. because pod mapping can be used for... Um, mapping out crisis oh, networks um, coming into crisis mm. situations. And, yeah, generally it is used um, to map out when you're trying to create networks, um, when you, like, you have experienced harm um, or somebody has caused harm to you and you want to like, map out who that you can talk to and connect to during that time. But um, pod mapping is actually being talked about quite a bit now in regards to mutual aid. Mm. So, yeah, I'm really excited for listeners to hear this conversation. Yeah. And, yeah, as you say, it does feel like, because you had no idea, obviously, you'd be broadcasting it right here and now, but it mm. does make heaps of sense to be playing it this week. Hey? Mm. That's rad. And then at 8 o'clock, we're going to be chatting with Pauline Vertuna, who is a really incredible Tolai Melanesian writer, poet, artist and disability justice advocate, um, who's going to join us on the show to talk about what disability justice looks like amidst the coronavirus pandemic. Mm. Really important conversation mm. to have. And then lastly, we're going to be speaking with Manisha Njali. And Manisha is a writer and poet, um, and they're working here in Nam at the moment. And Manisha is going to join us to speak about her newly published work, Electric Lotus, that was published by the Insidium Radical Library. Um, and I think it's a really great way as well to be supporting artists um, at this time. Mm. Absolutely. And yeah, just a heads up for listeners, you know, we're going to still be broadcasting, you know, during the coronavirus pandemic, but um, we are going to change to all over the phone interviews for now. Yeah. So, and there might be some other changes, but we'll keep you posted. Yeah. 
Viruses like flu and coronavirus spread when tiny droplets from coughs and sneezes land on surfaces that others touch. You can help reduce this risk by coughing or sneezing into your elbow or upper arm. Or use a tissue and put the tissue in the bin straight after. Then wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. 3CR broadcasters present over 100 radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come smarter than a 3CR community radio, please subscribe now. Testimona ila ila 3CR community radio araja al istrak al an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanali 3CR ai kettu kondirukkirgal. Indre ninaiyungal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuketsek radio i gairanin poratanguda melbumi hai kaotin. Hima artsanakrevetsek ifer 3CR i antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am, and we're going to jump into news headlines with Kate Kelly. Morning, Kate. Good morning. So, first up today... In the Northern Territory, the Aboriginal Orange Not-for-Profit Health Service, the Purple House, which is based in Alice Springs, emphasised the need to um, keep patients living in the cities on country, the NITV has reported. So there's a high risk related to um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander contracting coronavirus, and they have a high risk of serious infection. So travel to and from remote communities in the Northern Territory have already been heavily scaled back with existing permits for non-essential travel to be suspended and no new permits granted until further notice. NT Labor Senator Mulundiri McCarthy reiterated concerns for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders living remotely during a press conference on Tuesday criticised media reporting of COVID-19 for stirring excess fear in those communities. And yesterday, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance called on the federal government to get a stimulus package into the arts to support live performance, screen and media industries throughout the pandemic. The call follows a similar request by live performance and other peak artists for a $850 million package designed to keep arts workers in their jobs. So the coronavirus shutdown is set to cost the industry hundreds of millions of dollars with countless number of people out of work. And if you've been on social media in the last few days, you would have seen that already happening. Um, to give you a scale of the idea in just four days, self-reporting on the I Love My Gig website, which is a self-reporting website, um, recorded an $150 million in losses income from people just people in the arts. So the organisers who set up this website um, are saying that those who want to show their support can donate to Sport Act, which is a charity delivering crisis relief to music industry workers, and they can also stream, share, buy merchandise uh, of Australian artists. And then finally, landlords are being urged to to show leniency to, to 
tenants who cannot afford to pay their rent during um, the coronavirus outbreak. We've called Japan a bitch at getting worse things. The tenancy is calling for freezing rents and that's the one that's currently in place in France. So just to give you an idea of what other countries are doing to deal with this issue, um, evictions have been banned in cities like New York, Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um, in France, suspended all bills and rent and mortgage repayments have also been suspended in Italy for individuals struggling to pay their loans. And this has been agreed with, with the so on the petition by Greens MP Jenny Leong demanding no evictions in New South Wales has attracted more than um, a thousand signatures. And if you're interested, you can find that petition on her Facebook page. And that is it. I had to find some non-coronavirus news, but that's not happening at the moment. No, it really feels like it's sort of the, the only story at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and on that last point, Kate, I wanted to ask, because, um, yeah, it feels so important to be advocating for, you know, against evictions at this time and for a rent amnesty. But it, was I right that I read that WA had frozen rates or had put an amnesty on rates at the moment? Yeah, yeah, that's my understanding of it, yeah. Which I think, look, I think, to be honest, if it does... You know, Australia yesterday just recorded over 400 cases. And when, you know, when I'm talking about Italy and France, um, I'm sure everyone knows as they've been watching that they have cases into the double of digit thousands. Um, I think if, if the situation does progress in that manner here, that the, the, all states and territories will have to follow and do a similar thing, um, because this is quite an unprecedented event. Um, but, the tenancy union is calling for that security nationwide now, which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. And surely if WA is leading the way, I mean, that's an advocacy platform <laughs> for Victoria, if ever there was. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I don't want to send any former WA um, audience listeners. Uh, oh, like all, all power. I mean, it's, amazing. it's so good. You know, it is like a really positive step, but I'm like, we all, like, everyone else needs to follow suit now. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, it would, I mean, you know, this is my opinion, which I try not never to give, but I think it would um, limit some of the insecurity and panic which we're seeing, which sort of makes people feel a bit worse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think I mentioned this last week on the show as well, but I feel like this pandemic is really just bringing out all of those issues that were already occurring under capitalism. Um, yeah. And... Yeah, I think we're about to see a lot of people being released from prison, mm. but then there's still not enough housing for people. We're going to be seeing you know, increased rates of family and domestic violence because people are now being told to self-isolate um, and quarantine, mm. and that just means that there's going to be more yeah, time mm. in those interpersonal relationships. Um, yeah, it's a bit yeah. scary. Yeah, no, it's definitely true, and I think we're already seeing it, like... The uncertainty of the, you know, casualization of the workforce yesterday. One of my mates got a message from her sister and she's been laid off in a few weeks. And so you're already starting to see those things and, and that will only get worse as um, we get more cases, mm. um, you know, over the next coming months. And so I think it's really important to, to remember that, that aside from the health issue of the pandemic, there is an economic issue that is massive 
and people who are new start, um, people who have just got out of prison, people who uh, are casual workers are going to be impacted by this and we really need to be aware of, of helping them and supporting them and also pressing for structural change that can happen within the time frame that, that can happen to help out. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, we might fare you well, Kate. Thank you very much for headlines this morning. Yeah. And we'll speak with Thank you next you. week. Thank you. Have a wonderful show. That was News Headlines with Kate Kelly. And up next, I think we might play a track. Mm, yeah. Okay, let's play a new track by Snotty Nose Res Kids. So these guys are from Turtle Island, um, but I just absolutely love their music. I love drill. I love trap. So here it is, Real Deadly by Sunny Nose Res Kids. Yeah. The king is dead, the king is dead. There's no sheriff in town. Open this head, open this head. I need you, I come from my crowd. Money don't fall down, I can fall like confetti. Fall like confetti. My niche has been ready, let's go up already. She say bullshit, oh yes. Fuck being humble, I'm all in the day like some shots with no taste. Wow, wow, ow, ow. West Coast step when I'm walking it down. Let's get Nietzsche, that's your dizzy. I'm my mama's child. All eyes on me, they watching us now. Middle fingers up, I'm too pocking it out. Long hair, don't care, boy, I do what I want. Got a party in the back, chief and council in the front. So spit game, talking shit, blah, blah, blah. You the lambs on the fuck with, nah, nah, nah. Shot my blood in my veins, hey, y'all, hey, y'all. Need a tongue, but my name got so like they like, why? Spout it, oh, I blow them kisses real deadly. When it all fall down, I can fall like confetti. My niche has been ready, let's go up already. My goodies go stupid like Eddie and Eddie. I told you my niche will remember who said it. Snotty knows that's no good. I do what I want, what's good. My niche, I wish you would. This little engine I could. I was dead to the world for a minute. Then when I put it in my head, I'm living. you like to share with listeners today other ways of responding to harm liberation this sound shield that you could take with you to protest collaborative dialogue demystify the process liberation loops my name is carly beck and you're listening to liberation loops a series that has been created and produced from the 3cr studios on the lands of the wurundjeri and the bunurong peoples of the kulin nation this is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system 
and through this series I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and in what ways people are learning to heal from harm. In this episode, I speak with Yung Ocean Dang about pod mapping. Ocean is a Vietnamese settler, therapist, supervisor, and facilitator living and working on Yagara and Turrbal country. Trained as a social worker and narrative therapist, and brought up through prison abolition and anti-violence organizing, Ocean has spent the last several years working to articulate the connection between collective liberation and personal transformation through political education and counseling. Guiding and grounding her work is a commitment to supporting people to respond to trauma and violence in a context of safety, dignity and social justice. This episode discusses the importance of preparing for crisis situations and challenges us to broaden our ideas about consent within our interpersonal relationships. Welcome Jung or Ocean. How are you going? Hi, Charlie. I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, giving a go at pronouncing my name. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about um, the meaning behind your name? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I only recently discovered the meaning of it, to be honest. I'm 32, and it's taken me almost 32 years to discover it. Um, so I recently asked my mum to translate or to write it down for me, and um, I asked a couple of friends to, to translate it, and discovered that Yung means ocean, and the, the longer part of the name, which uh, is uh, the distance of the Pacific Ocean, uh, which might not have a lot of meaning for people listening to this, but um, to me has a lot of meaning because it reconnects me to my roots, uh, where I come from, and, you know, the story of being a refugee and migration in which my parents were separated Um when they were trying to flee uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, so the story goes, it took them the distance of the Pacific Ocean to make me. So, yeah, I, I'm happy to go by Yung or, or Ocean. And uh, where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from, well, my office at the moment in Paddington. But, uh, yeah, I live and work on Yaga and Turrbal country. And can you tell listeners how you came into this practice? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. I mean, I think from many different places, but um, I think a lot of people um, come to social work or social justice work um, because we've experienced some kind of pain um, or harm or violence in our lives. Um, I think growing up, I realized pretty early on that the, the current systems that we have in place did not offer resolution or healing um, to the harm that my family or I experienced or witnessed. Um, you know, so growing up, there were lots of, you know, um, incidents of family violence, but calling the police was not an option or a thing that we wanted to do. But I also realized that there weren't, you know, at the time growing up, didn't know of any alternatives, didn't know of what else to do other than um, endure it, um, other than, like, turning towards each other, which I guess is a form of community response. Um, and I say I think this experience of violence and understanding of state harm um, kind of led me to work in uh, domestic violence and sexual assault organisations 
Um, but I also learnt pretty quickly through those systems that um, there was nothing really in place to protect people who've been victimised by harm and that the systems that we are told that are here to protect us actually harm us. So policing, legal systems, the criminal justice system. But what I noticed in my work with clients is that they were constantly failing people. And so I think it was about maybe seven years ago that I started to look into, like, okay, what, what's out there? What, if we're not going to turn into to policing, what can we do? And I attended a community accountability workshop, and it just blew me away. I began to explore and imagine and see in practice um, that there were other ways of responding to harm that didn't cause further harm. And so, yeah, I guess, like, both my experiences and histories of balance, my work in the area led me to to dream of something better or something different and seeing that there was already work happening on the ground, both in, in the engine and in other places around the world, uh, I think really fueled some hope that, yeah, this is what I want to invest in. This is what I want to dedicate my kind of life to. What does community yeah. accountability mean to you? Um, well, I think there are many definitions to it, but I, as a really like quick, you know, um, definition that I really like is uh, is an approach to responding to violence, harm, and abuse without causing more harm. Um, it sounds pretty simple, but I think there's so many things that can get in the way of that. Uh, so community responses or accountability um, responses and interventions don't rely on the state or its tactics and don't reinforce uh, violence and senses healing, accountability and safety for all involved. Um, I think, you know, like when I think about community accountability, what it really tries to do is respond to isolation and disconnection, which... I think it is really a breeding ground for harm to be reinforced with gone notice. You know, so it, it's so much easier to distrust and fear each other when uh, when we're disconnected. It's so much easier to get trapped into thinking that there is good and bad, you know, a villain and hero and innocent and guilty when we're isolated. And I think it's so much easier to think that the state can deal with harm when we haven't yet developed the skills, relationships and knowledge to respond to harm ourselves. Um, so in saying that, like, community accountability is about building connections of deep trust, care, and reliability. It's about creating and relying on a group of people to respond to harm, which disperses the weight of responsibility. You know, it's not saying that one person's responsible, the state's responsible. Saying, how do we find a group where we can have collective care and responsibility? Um, it's building kind of a circle, you know, like, good people that can embolden us to take action to respond to harmful or risky situations. And I think it's, it's about learning to practice new languages and practices that can, can help us to respond to harm. So, I mean, I, I really think it's about how we relate to each other. It's about learning how to be in relation with each other, especially when things are hard. And it's about how to make repair, how we respond to the ruptures in our everyday life. What tool would you like to share with listeners today? Yeah, um, I would like to share um, pod mapping, so, mm-hmm. which 
um, comes from the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective in California in the U.S. And I, I think there are like so many tools out there to respond to violence, but I really like to talk about this one because it's a relationship-based model for doing care work and accountability work. And it's a tool that we can, I think anyone can use, right? That it's accessible and something that we can do when we're not in crisis. So, I mean, just a bit of context and, and background, I think um, when we hear the word community accountability, um, a question that comes up a lot of time, which is legitimate, is like, what do you mean by community? Like, um, who's going to be there for me? And I think community can be a really vague and romanticized term. And, you know, when, when stuff happens, when harm occurs, you know, I can't just rely on, say, the Vietnamese community or the queer community to help me. But I can call on a couple of people, a few people I trust that I know, to respond to the situation with care and respect. So this small group of people is what um, this tool calls my pod. So a pod is a very specific group of people for a specific purpose. Um, pods are a more useful way to understand our relationships and the supports that we need if we've been harmed or who we need to need for us to be um, held accountable. Uh, so for example, um, there's, a, there's a pod map worksheet uh, on the website of the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective um, group. And it's a worksheet that you can use for a very specific purpose. For example, if I was trying to figure out who I need to call in a mental health crisis, um, and if I didn't create a pod map, sure, I could just rely on some of my friends. Um, but also, our thinking gets really restricted or constricted when we're in crisis and we might just like rely on one or two people and overwhelm them. And so I, the, the beauty about the, the PodMap worksheet is that we can kind of map the people out first. So the first thing I would do is like write my name in the center circle. Uh, so you just grab any kind of blank sheet, write your name in the center circle. The surrounding bold outline circles is my pod. So I've got the names of people who are in my pod. Uh, an important action is to write the names of actual individuals rather than just like friends or my neighbors. Um, so the closest circles have a, a heavy border um, and pod people can be people you know you can really rely on. So these aren't necessarily family or friends or your partner even, um, but people you you come to trust and know that are reliable in in whatever specific situation you're you're referring to. So the next layer of circles are marked by dotted lines rather than solid, solid lines. So they are people who are movable. Um, they are people that could be moved into your pod but need a little bit more work. For example, I have some friends who could support me in a crisis, crisis but I'm unsure and I need to have a conversation with them first about my needs and my mental health issues and how they could offer support. And then finally, the, the larger circles at the edge of the page are for networks, communities and groups that could be resources for you. So for me, it might be like mental health services, practitioners who aren't um, going to hospitalize me without my consent, um, practitioners who engage in harm reduction. Um, so that's, that's what could happen for the, the larger um, circles. 
Yeah, so there's that. There's, that's the kind of how. Um, I'd really, I mean, is there anything else that you would add to that, Carly? Um, no, but I think that you make a really great point that this is a tool that we can use prior to coming into crisis situations. And it was only recently that a friend called me up and she works in a similar position to what I do where I support people um, who are criminalised and who have also experienced family and domestic violence. And uh, my friend, uh, a family member of hers, um, has been struggling with alcohol and drug addiction. And there was a crisis that happened in this woman's life and my friend um, was deeply affected by it and she called me crying wanting to know Mm. what supports um, for her family member that she could reach Mm. out to and if it hadn't been somebody who was incredibly close to her then she Mm. would have mapped out some solutions some options Mm. but because it was in a a moment of crisis um, she couldn't think clearly through Mm. work that she actually has done before um, and assisted people who um, are struggling with alcohol and drug addictions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think preparation is key, you know, I think. But in, I mean, we've heard a lot about, like, you know, in the context of bushfires or, like, um, you know, other disasters, there's, like, uh, crisis preparation and planning for that, right? What's your bushfire preparation plan? Or in the context of, you know, pandemics and epidemics, we're hearing a lot about how do you prepare for that. But we don't often hear about how do you prepare for, like, everyday harms, which are more likely than a pandemic, right? Like, because harm happens in so many ways and support is required very frequently. And so I think, yeah, like, to, to consider how... Who do you need? What do you need um, when when you're not in crisis? Um, I think is is so uh, so important. But I guess the other thing that is a really important part of why preparation or planning is important is around consent and negotiation. Um, so the beauty about this is that you can map it out. So you, you've done your pod map. Um, the the second part is actually taking it to people who are on your uh, pod map and asking them if um, they consent to being the person you can call on when harm happens or when support is required. And having that conversation helps to be deliberate and intentional and transparent about the support you're requesting. Um, so it helps to create a culture of consent, but also, you know, then you can know, oh, are they... Do they have the space, the availability, the time, the resources to do it, rather than just um, assuming they will and then calling them when you're in a crisis and then realizing, oh, damn, they aren't available, and then um, realizing that you don't have anyone to call. So I think, yeah, um, that consent part process is, I think, something that which is missing in our culture quite broadly, but in a lot of um, a lot of practices that are out there. Mm. And I also really enjoy how people can move, um, I guess, kind of the levels of your pod as well. Mm-hmm. 
And it also makes you think about, yes, the people that you can call on um, in situations where you've either caused harm or you've been harmed, but also thinking about those people in your life who you might be able to call on in those situations, but also then how maybe you've never had a conversation with them about their policies or you know, their yeah. politics around mental health or around calling the police. And so it allows you to think about those people that you can bring closer to mm-hmm. your inner circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which is, um, I agree, Carly, and I think that's great. And also like an act of vulnerability, you know, to, to like start a conversation with someone who you're not very emotionally intimate with like oh this person is someone I think I can trust but I I want to have this conversation it is an act of vulnerability but also like I think so crucial in this work is that like we normalize these conversations right we we normalize asking people about you know our um, bringing them on to like hold us accountable around something or offering us support but there is so much stigma, right? and I think I'm really aware of this as a counsellor who, you know, sees people in private because there's so much shame and stigma for people to, to address issues around mental health in their friends and family, like, that these conversations always carry with it, like, a lot of stigma uh, and a lot of shame. Uh, and so I think, you know, if we, we have a map where we can, like, find ways to reach out to people and start these conversations. Um, I think it not only broadens our community or network of support, but it also offers those people and um, the people who we're asking almost like a sense of permission, right? A sense of going, hey, I'm seeking help. I'm normalising that, like, you know, that these kind of conversations around harm or support. And I think it gives people, other people permission to do the same in their, their lives as well. And, Yon, um, in your practice, how have you used this tool for community accountability? Yeah. It's, like, it's often come a lot... Uh, sorry, it's come up a lot um, when... I'm having conversations about people and they feel isolated or disconnected from people um, but are wanting to reach out a bit more. Um, so in some of my counselling sessions, um, you know, like when people are talking about disconnection or isolation um, but needing support, I'll ask them about yeah, who they have in their life. Uh, that can support them and I'll ask them like I'll kind of introduce this tool as like a one possible map or one possible tool to figure out and stretch their um, support networks and so we we just kind of do it together right Um, we have a blank piece of paper like a three piece of paper is better and we just start the process have them in the centre and then ask them who are the people in the the inner circle and usually it's often people struggle a bit because um, I mean it's the process of which is feels really vulnerable to name these are the people or to find out or realize you don't have a lot of people in your inner circle 
I think that in itself can bring a lot of shame. And so part of the conversation is going, right, like we might only have a couple of people, even one person in our inner circle. Um, and that's okay. Like part of it is like mapping out and re- revealing who we have, revealing the gaps, and then asking ourselves, then who do we need to fill those gaps? And people, like, you know, because it's such a, a visual tool, uh, an accessible tool and one that is quite simple, um, I have found in, in my sessions um, people have, like, latched onto pretty quickly. And and then, like, they can take it home, right, and, like, further map out their, their pod map if we don't finish it in the session. And then they can do the second part, which is, like, going to those people and and um, seeking consent around being in the, the circle. Um, but, yeah, the, so I've done it in my sessions, but um, I've also talked about it in some of uh, the community accountability workshops that I've, I'm running at the moment or have run in the past. Uh, so that's kind of cool as well because to do it in a training uh, workshop context, you kind of generate a big conversation about it. Um, so, yeah, they're the two contexts in which I've, I've practiced it. Mm. And I particularly like pod mapping because one of the reasons why I've actually started this series, Liberation Loops, is because I think that community accountability and transformative justice are being talked about much more in our communities. But mm, people yeah. don't necessarily know um, the tools um, that they can practice on a daily yeah. basis. And this is something that we can all practice. Um, And I think that a lot of people are saying, no, we're not going to be calling the cops. Um, No, we're not going to be calling these certain violent institutions anymore. Mm -hmm. And they're looking to, for want of a better word, an alternative. And people Mm -hmm. think that we need to create these other, I guess, community organisations that can replace the police or replace these other harmful yeah. institutions. Yeah. But in reality, we have to completely rethink the way that we respond to yeah. harm with one another. Yeah. And that's something yeah. that pod mapping, I guess, creates um, a path for us to work towards. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I really appreciate that point, Carly. I mean, I think particularly as we're questioning policing what can often happen is yeah as you said like let, let's create this other organization or let's turn to this other system let's turn to this leader let's turn to someone big you know in our world who is the founder of this organization and i think that you know what we want to do is decentralize power mm. um, and not rely on one source one person to give us the answers or to be the rescuer or saver or intervener in a situation. What transformative justice is really bad is that we all have to learn and practice uh, communicating, apologising, reaching out, um, holding each other accountable, understanding the links between trauma and violence. You know, I think this isn't the work of just experts or the work of therapists, you know, it's the work that we all can do and need to do to transform this culture. And I think, you know, like, the more we can feel we're 
we're practicing it or just doing the small steps. I think the more we kind of demystify the process, because I think still a lot of people are like wondering, you know, thinking that it's a very confusing or big process, you know, I mean, a lot of people think, oh my gosh, community accountability is this whole like, you know, two-year process where you have to like create these massive group structures and commit all your time and energy into, and then at the end of the, everyone's kind of disillusioned. I mean, yes, that happens, but I think podmapping offers a very um, accessible or like easier tool to you, um, which means it's like, okay, you're doing the work, right? It's mm. not something that you have to, um, yeah, get schooled on for, for a really long time before you engage with. Mm. And so you've got your pod map. What happens then when harm does happen? So you have yeah. experienced harm, um, mm-hmm. and how does the pod map work in that instant? Yeah. So this is assuming that you've created a pod map um, when you've experienced harm, right? That you your pod map is to support people um, you have in place for that. So, I mean, I think that's a really important point to make that you can't use one pod map for every case. So, like, your pod map for causing harm and people you need to hold you accountable would be possibly very different to the pod map um, if you've experienced harm. So, yeah. I've experienced harm, I was, you know, six months ago I created this, you know, pod map or, or, you know, mapping out the circles or the people who would help me. Um, and I, the other part is, like, that you check in with people from time to time uh, if they're still agreeable to be on this map. So harm happens six months later, I will contact these people and they are already aware that they're on the map. And I'll say, I'll tell them, provide some information or context to what the harm was. Um, and it's, you know, depending on what you negotiate with those persons, so they could just offer, you know, one person could just offer, like, emotional support. Like, someone could offer practical support, transporting you to places, accompanying you to events where the person who caused you harm might be, um, going to appointments with you. And then you might have a person who um, can do the work around speaking to the person who has caused the harm, right? So, and it just like dips into like community accountability process, processes, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think there can be a variety of different people. So you make contact, um, you ask if they're still on board, if they're on board, they will take those actions um, that you kind of agreed on. And I, I imagine, like, because every context or incident is different, you would have to have a conversation about what kind of support they can offer and how how often or how frequent. So I think that that consent process doesn't just happen right at the beginning, um, but happens when the the support is activated. Um, yeah, so that that's a really significant. Um, that happens after yeah, you've experienced time. Mm. Lastly, Ocean, can you tell listeners how they can find out a bit more about your work? 
Yeah, um, I have a very basic website <laughs> called um, healingandjustice.com.au or um, on social media, media like Healing and Justice. Um, so, yeah, that's how you can find out about my work. And I yeah, would love to connect with people who are interested in the themes that we've talked about today. Um, I can't get enough of talking about transformative justice <laughs> or community accountability. So, yeah, totally hit me up. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR to talk through pod mapping and also what community accountability means to you. Yeah, thank you, Carly. It's been a pleasure. And that was a conversation that I had with Yong Ocean Dang about pod mapping and community accountability. And if you want to find out more about pod mapping, then head to the 3CR website and follow the Liberation Loop series. And there you will find links to both Ocean's work and also the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collector's resources for pod mapping. Thank you to Squidunini for providing the music to the opening segment. And I really want to find out if you're enjoying this series. So email me at cbaque3cr at gmail.com and tell me your thoughts. Next week. Uh, you'll be hearing a conversation that I have with Annalisa Fat about collaborative dialogue. So tune in then. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Are you ready to be inspired by local grassroots earthery? Connect with the stories of Friends of the Earth's 45 years of creative resistance. Everything from anti-nukes in the 70s, road blockades in the 90s, Indigenous solidarity, feminist politics, and so much more. Tune into the podcast at 3cr.org.au slash acting up. And be inspired to create a fair and just future for all. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, Thursday morning breakfast with Max and Carly. And I hope that you all enjoyed that conversation that I had with Ocean Dang um, about pod mapping. And I really encourage listeners to jump on the 3CR website. Um, you can find links to the yeah, Bay Justice Transformative, Transformative Justice Collective's resources because they actually created the term and resources for pod mapping. And I think it's a tool that we could all start using today. Um, and now we're going to jump into a track by Remy and Sensible J, featuring Jace XL, called Get It Right. Let me know what you want from me, cause I will be okay. I'm doing okay, raise your voice if you want something. I'm feeling my way, I'll be finding new ways. Pop off, get the ball running, cause I'm hungry today. We so hungry today, till I get it right. My energy won't fade away. 
genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellows learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM Thursday morning breakfast. And those two tracks that you heard before were Get It Right by Remy, Sensible J and Jace XL. And that last track was by Calypso, Sidestep. And now we're joined on the line by Pauline Vertuna. Pauline is a Tulai Melanesian writer, poet, artist and disability justice advocate. And she joined us on the show to talk about what disability justice looks like amidst the coronavirus pandemic. Welcome, Pauline. Good morning. Thank you for joining us here on 3CR. Thanks for having me. Can you first start off by telling listeners what disability justice means to you? Okay, so um, I guess I want the listeners to understand that disability justice is a a, a specific movement. Um, It's not separate to the disability rights movement, but it is is kind of a, a, a very new movement that is emerging out of the United States. Disability justice, the term, was initially conceived by um, queer disabled women of colour, Patty Byrne, um, Amir Mingus, Stacey Morgan in the San Francisco Bay Area in the United States around 2005. And they and some others formed the Disability Justice Collective. Um, And the, the Disability Justice Collective and the movement was built in reaction to their exclusion from the mainstream disability rights movement and disability studies discourse and activism, as well as the ableism that exists in activism spaces. 
Um, and so basically dis- the disability justice centers disabled people of color. It, it centers immigrants with disabilities, queers with disabilities, trans and gender, non-conforming people with disabilities, um, people with disabilities who are houseless, people with disabilities who are incarcerated, people with disabilities who have, you know, ancestral land stolen, Indigenous peoples. Um, and I guess the, the, the founders of this particular um, emerging movement, they sort of, they made each other through um, a, a performance project called Sins and Ballad. It's, a, it's one that centers people of color um, and queer people of color with disabilities. And they sort of define disability justice through 10 key principles, which are intersectionality, leadership by those most affected, anti-capitalism, solidarity across different activist causes and movements, um, recognizing people as whole people, sustainability, solidarity across different disabilities, interdependence, collective access, and collective liberation. So I, I guess I, I use the term disability justice and that framework because it's the only one presently that encompasses intersectionality and understands that disability justice and racial justice and a lot of other forms of justice are not in contact with them from each other. And there is a current conversation amongst disabled people about access coming out of the US and made possible by the ADA. Can you tell listeners a little bit about this? Yeah, so um, as I said before, the disability rights movement, as a civil rights movement, has existed for a while. Um, and one of its major achievements in the United States was the 1990 Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, or as an acronym. Um, and there was a, a subsequent ADA Amendment Act in 2008. And um, so the law itself is um, a major civil rights law that prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in a lot of aspects of public life. But the 2008 Amendment um, specifically stipulated that employers with over 15 employees are required to allow remote work. There's something that's um, called reasonable accommodation. So, um, you know, if an employer has over 15 employees um, and they have disabled employees, they are meant to allow those disabled employees to work remotely um, as what is called a reasonable accommodation. As long as it doesn't impose, I think they call it, undue burden on the employer. So a cost would be an undue burden if it was just too expensive. But Mm. there's been, in the last 10 years, there's been like huge advancements in technology and telecommunications and it's become quite affordable for businesses and just people in general to be able to communicate with each other across long distances. So if you have an information-based or communications-based um occupation, there's no reason that you can't do that from home. Mm. Um, so employers are in the United States, employers with employers are required to do that. Um, and it's interesting because at the moment, in the midst of this pandemic crisis, a lot of non-disabled people are now securing remote work for themselves because of this reasonable accommodation provision in the ADA. Mm. Um, and that'd be great. However, um, and many, many dis- disabled people and disabled advocates are pointing out that um, 
despite these legal provisions, and the ADA is pretty pretty strong. It's it's definitely stronger than Australian frameworks, which I'll explain in a, in a minute. But yeah. um, even though they've got those legal um, those legal protections, um, disabled people in America are discriminated against all the time and denied, you know, reasonable um, reasonable accommodations all the time. But in the midst of this crisis, Amboy is allowing it to large swaths of people who are not disabled um, under those provisions. So it's really it's frustrating and angering for a lot of disabled people. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, to be told that there's something that you couldn't do from home, but now employers are saying, oh, yes, that can be done from home. Yes, that can be done via email. Or, you know, that meeting can be done via phone or Zoom. Um, and, Pauline, can you tell listeners a bit about the Australian legislation in comparison to the ADA? Yeah, so the, as I said, the ADA is a much, it's, it's, it's got more teeth than the Australian legal framework. The Disability Discrimination Act in Australia was passed in 1992, um, and it's pretty ineffectual in comparison at offering protections for disabled people. It's, um, it, it definitely places the burden on disabled people to challenge instances of discrimination, but at the same time, it doesn't offer any real enforcement of our rights. So that's obviously a huge problem. And it's extra frustrating because there are other pieces of legislation that are supposed to bolster and support that. Like, for example, we have the Anti-Discrimination Act and the Human Rights Act. Um, but the, the vast majority of public and private spaces, built environments are inaccessible to people. That's, I mean, that indicates a lot in terms of the amount of protection and rights that disabled people have within Australia. Mm. Um, and yeah, I guess the implications for this um, are really dire for disabled people in terms of everything from housing to healthcare to transport to the job market. I mean, public housing. Public housing is already a nightmare situation for non-disabled people. There is no accessible public housing. So it, there's, it's, it's a really, it's pretty dire um, and it's kind of an overlooked area of public policy um, and the implications for disabled people are things like, for example, 50% of disabled people are living through the poverty line. Um, the unemployment rate for disabled people is double that for non-disabled people. Health outcomes for physical and mental health are worse um, than the rest of the population. Life expectancy is worse. And then, of course, you intersect that with things like race, um, indigeneity, and it gets even, even worse. And, of course, rates of disability amongst First Nations people are actually higher than, than for the rest of the population. So... The implications are really, really stark. Um, and I guess, yeah, a huge part of this is really to do with the fact that people don't, like even beyond the legislation in place and how ineffectual it is, I think there's a huge part of the problem as many um, disability activists in this country and the board will point out is that people don't understand what disability is. Mm. And they don't understand it as a structural thing. They sort of think of it as like just a medical impairment that an individual has. But as like the Western Australian Senator Jordan Stilshon, who's the first wheelchair user in Parliament, he said last year 
Um, he said something like, disability is the collective result of society's failure to adapt and to include people regardless of their impairment. So it's, that's what disability is. Ableism is, ableism is a multifaceted and structural and systemic form of oppression. And it's enforced in cultures, it's enforced in systems, and it's enforced in our public institutions. And even in like the very idea of the nation state, I mean, ableism is enforced at the border as well in immigration policy. So, yeah, with, uh, without that understanding, there's no way that we can design public policy and legislation that, that fully protects disabled people. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, you're listening to 3CR 855 AM and we're speaking with Pauline Vertuna. Pauline, um, do you think that, um, you know, there is a pushback against accommodations for disabled people versus the granting of those same accommodations to non-disabled people during this pandemic? Um, can you speak a little bit more about your thoughts in regards to this? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anybody... I know a lot of people are trying to avoid online at the moment, mm. but it is where a lot of disability activists live because, um, first of all, it's with, well, because of inaccessibility. It's one of the only ways we can communicate with each other. It's a democratic medium for fairly for now anyway, so a lot of people are expressing themselves online and coming out of the United States, there's a lot of um, public discourse about just sort of highlighting the fact that these accommodations are being afforded now um, during this pandemic and they weren't and they haven't been for a very long time for many, many people. I mean, people are going online and sharing anecdotes from their own lives about, you know, um, universities denying them reasonable accommodations, employers denying them reasonable accommodations, um, landlords denying them a reasonable accommodation. So, and it's, it's not even just, you know, a handful of people. This is the sheer numbers anecdotally that are coming out of people telling these stories. It's, it's systemic and it's, it's really interesting that, um, in the midst of this crisis, we're not seeing, um, people starting to acknowledge that Mm. Um, affording disabled people reasonable accommodations and, and recognising the rights of disabled people. Um, it, eventually, at some point in time, it will come in handy for us. I think that's what's coming out of this crisis, um, is that people are starting to see that. And certainly, disabled activists have been using this moment to kind of highlight that, because um, even despite that, disabled people are still, first of all, uh, like they're the most at-risk people in the this crisis, particularly mm. those who are older and disabled. Um, and uh, a lot of people, as I said before, not just in this country, but globally, disabled people tend to be the poorest people in different communities. So facing um, housing instability, facing um, barriers to healthcare, barriers to accessing food. Um, in the midst of all of this, even the provisions that are for us are still benefiting people who aren't us more than us. Mm. Um, so for a lot of different people watching and all of this, it's just, 
it's incredibly frustrating and angry and scary um, that this is happening. But hmm. um, I feel like if people can start to understand within this crisis the validity of granting those access measures to people, there won't be for nothing, hopefully. Mm, absolutely. Um, and I think that um, for able-bodied people um, that we need to acknowledge that as well. So when you know our employers are saying, oh, we're going to access, you know, going to give you this accommodation, be like, well, why wasn't that done prior um, to the people in our community and to our you know, workplaces when you didn't afford that accommodation prior and really, like, call out um, our employees, uh, ploy- sorry, employers for that? Um, and... Pauline, do you have any other suggestions for listeners um, so that they can inform themselves about disability justice? I think it's actually great that people are starting to investigate even just for themselves, trying to, to access remote work and, and things like that and take note of the things they are granted in this time and really push to make them permanent. I think that's critical, like, that, that, that these provisions aren't just some things that are granted during this time of crisis, that they are made permanent and ongoing. And also recognise too, I mean, um, every single uh, official medical, um, you know, officer speaking on this topic at the moment is saying that um, coronavirus is the pandemic of the moment. Um, but because of how it came about, there are, there's likely going to be many more to come. Mm. Um you know, people are talking about having uh, systems in place for the for the next one already. Um, and so it, it can't go back to business as usual in many, many respects. But I, I, this is another aspect where people can really push for things to be made permanent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we might have to wrap it up there, Pauline, but thank you so much for joining us on 3CR this morning. No worries. And that was a conversation um, that we just had with Pauline Vertuna talking about disability justice and what that looks like amidst the coronavirus pandemic. Hi, I'm Maurice. And I'm Mario. And we're Chronically Chronically Chilled. Chilled a program that aims to provide a platform to those living with chronic and invisible illness, as well as exploring topics that impact on our daily lives. Listen to Chronically Chilled, the first Wednesday of every month at 6pm. I'm Chai Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR... Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo. Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa 
every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and that track was Homecoming Queen by Thalma Plum. And now joined on the line, we have Manisha Njali, and she's a writer and artist working with text, performance, and installation. 
Her practice and research explores narratives and languages of dreams and exile. And today, Manisha joins us to speak about her newly published work, Electric Lotus. Welcome, Manisha. Hello, Carly. Thank you for having me. So it's your first time joining uh, our show, Thursday Morning Breakfast. So can you tell listeners a bit more about yourself? Yeah, so I am an artist and writer. I work with the language of dreams and I also, um, I love dreams so much that I've also started a dream archiving project called Neptune where I collect other people's dreams and yeah, I've been writing predominantly poetry for like the last five years and really into performance mm. and I also edit poetry at the Lifted Brow. Amazing. Yeah, just saw on Instagram that you went up to Brisbane recently um, and you were performing at IMA. Yes, that's right. And that was part of um, Sententia Mohini Simpson's um, exhibition that's on at the moment. And it was a performance night um, honouring sort of our ancestors who were indentured labourers. Important work. Um, so what drew you to writing and poetry and creating? Um, I've always been creating my whole life. I guess about 10 years ago, I really wanted to be a novelist and had like big dreams of doing that. And poetry sort of happened by accident when I'd finished a manuscript and I was actually like crossing out all the ugly words to make um, clear sentences and realized that what I was left with was poetry and yeah then discovered that it was actually this like super liberating freeing medium where there were no rules and kind of found my groove with it I guess. Um, And so I guess that brings us to your newly published work Electric Lotus and would you like to share a poem from Electric Lotus? Yes I would love to. So this poem is called Shy Cabbage. I stitch my tongue to a lotus cabbage head. I stunt my growth by applying powder to my amnesia. It sticks to my eye like a flowering gramophone. It is not that I can't speak. In my past life as a teacher, I cut off my own head with a handmade instrument. To give to the people of the swan. Now my ring finger rides between the lips of a carnivorous flower. A pink circle on my left wrist represents the way my blood turns to cotton when my mouth is absent. I trust the feeling of yellow and other incarnations of the sun. I play melodica to my reflection and my reflection does not play back because my reflection is not a loop machine. My reflection is a time machine. It is not that I can't speak. It is that expression in the face of a cabbage is shy. There is a text stitched to my tongue which reads, the birth of the saint happened on my skull. The birth of the saint happened on my skull. There is a text stitched to my tongue which reads, 
A sacrifice made for me is stitched like a curtain. My growth is stunted by C major. Thank you for sharing that, Manisha. So that one was called Shy Cabbage, um, and that is a poem, a part of Electric Lotus. Um, and I'm really glad that you shared this poem um, because I love your commitment to using old items. Um, so in this poem, you talk about gramophones, um, and then in other poems in Electric Lotus, you talk about cassette players and phonographs. Um, and I think that you really encourage listeners to like time travel almost. <laughs> Can you tell listeners a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, a huge part of this book is sort of stuck in like the 60s and 70s, the soundtrack at the beginning. So there is a soundtrack called Jukebox Performance for a Camellia Tree. Um, that it's a playlist of songs for the tree to perform in the dream world. And there's a QR code that takes you to the actual playlist on Spotify. Um, but that sort of, that particular time period is sort of inspired by, um, by Ma Anand Sheila and like the Rajneesh cult and like particularly her and her crooked intellect and the zeitgeist of that time. Um, and her just devotion to a human godlike figure and a, a huge part of this book is about um, devotion and torment, I guess, and I felt like her kind of character really encapsulated that. But, yeah, it's a bit of nostalgia and time travel happening here. Mm. There's also, um, yeah, time traveling to ancient times as well. Um, this book began as a research project. I found uh, these ancient women poets from India, I guess I was searching for um, divinity and expression of religious joy to try to understand different types of joy and um, poet, two poets in particular, Akka Mahadevi from the 12th century who was a Shiva devotee um, known for her spontaneous mystical poems and another poet, Lal Ded, a 14th century Kashmiri mystic also devoted to Shiva they, both women sort of renounced their roles as mothers and wives and chose a life as mystics and poets. They walked around with no clothes on, reciting poetry and songs for their deity. They were intoxicated by love and were celebrated for it. And I just thought that was really interesting. Mm, and you do have another poem as well in Electric Lotus that kind of touches on that as well. The no clothes yeah. recitation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, totally. Um, that's definitely for Akka Mahadevi and Lal Dead. It's just yeah, a contemporary kind of no clothes recitation. Yeah. Are there any other um, like research um, kind of topics that led you to some of the poetry that you've written in Electric Lotus? Um. The huge, yeah, so the um, research about those two ancient poets and then Sheila from the sort of 70s were huge. I guess the other thing was looking at like Fluxus instructional poetry, the kind of work that like Yoko Ono was famous for, for example, and there's a few little instructions for performance in here. And I wanted to create something that was interactive 
as mm. well. So in poems like Marriage Performance for Two Long-Haired Lovers, it's a kind of, I guess it's kind of like a breakup poem. Um, the performances in here are pretty dark, like the last poem, Laughing Liver Performance. Mm. You're supposed to cut it out and give it to your true love to perform and it's sort of like a twisted questionnaire where you have to imagine that your liver has a different personality from the rest of your body and it contains the spirit of all your dark thoughts and it's actually um, a version of a writing exercise I usually teach in workshops um, where I sort of dictate um, like you know, your liver is laughing, your liver is laughing as people are writing and use it as a prompt almost. Mm. Yeah, no, I did um, really like the last poem um, and, yeah, that use of interactive performance um, almost in this, like, written work. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to share it with anybody yet. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it yourself. <laughs> Um, but I am definitely going to listen to that playlist. I didn't even realise that the first poem, you can actually use the QR code. That's fantastic. Yep. Yep. Scan the code and it'll take you to Spotify and it's a pretty tightly curated um, playlist. It's just sort of, it's like psychedelic garage and filmy music from across Asia in the 60s and 70s. It's a lot of the music that I really love and I'm so happy to share. And Manisha, how can listeners um, keep informed about your upcoming work and also buy a copy of Electric Lotus? Uh, sure. So I post all updates on my website at manishaanjali.com and also on my Instagram, which is just manishaanjali. Copies of Electric Lotus are available at Incendium Radical Library, Brunswick Bound and Perfect Splash. Fantastic. And I think that um, the Insidium Radical Library can also purchase it online. Potentially. Yes, yeah, right. and they'll send it to you. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Manisha, for joining us here on 3CR this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that was Manisha Anjali, the writer of Electric Lotus. Um, and I really encourage listeners to, you know, buy copies of poetry and books at this time because, yeah, lots of artists um, are really not able mm. to, yeah, be performing um, as much as they'd like to be. Absolutely. And that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you so much, Carly, for holding that. I feel like that was really, <laughs> it's really a one-person show today. <laughs> no, I'm glad that we got to have the conversations that we had this morning. Mm. Um, yeah. Just to quickly run through for listeners, first up we heard from... Um, so we played the second episode of Liberation Loops and you had a conversation between myself and Ocean Dang about pod mapping and community accountability, but you can also use pod maps for times like this um, and working out your networks for mutual mm-hmm. aid. And then after that, um, you chatted with Pauline Vachuna about disability justice, um, particularly, again, at this time of the coronavirus pandemic and how important it is to advocate for permanent changes. Um, yeah. yeah. And then just lastly, we spoke with Manisha Anjali about her work, Electric Lotus. Mm, it was a really beautiful show. Thank you so much. And everyone stay tuned for Lost in Science. We'll be back next week. Um, and, yeah, we'll keep broadcasting through all of this. Mm. Fingers crossed. See you next week.
3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.